Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Ann Fisher. I'm host and executive producer of All Sides with Ann Fisher at WOSU Public Media. It's March 9th and you're with a virtual City Club forum. Most Americans agree that the U.S. justice system is broken and needs reform. Most of the focus has been on the criminal justice system. In fact, a recent poll from the Associated Press and the National Opinion Research Center found that 91% of Americans favor some sort of criminal justice and police reform. But for many, interaction with the legal system is on the civil side with issues such as debt collection, eviction or foreclosure, child custody and bankruptcy, to name just a few. How such cases are resolved can be life-changing, especially for the most vulnerable members of our society, older people, immigrants, the working poor, and those from minority communities. The COVID-19 pandemic has only exacerbated the problems with increased rates of unemployment, housing insecurity, and medical debt, and growing concerns about safety and domestic violence, together creating a surge in civil legal issues. Today, we're gonna to talk with national and local experts about the scope and scale of the problems that people encounter in the civil legal system and explore strategies to correct them. As with every City Club Forum, we invite your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them to at the City Club. We'll try to work them in. Now to introduce today's speakers, joining us, Susan Che. She is executive director of the Ohio Legal Help. It was founded in 2018. Ohio Legal Help works to increase equity in the legal system by providing free resources to Ohioans. Welcome, Susan. Colleen Cotter is the executive director of the Legal and Legal Aid Society of Cleveland. It's the fifth oldest legal aid organization in the United States. Legal Aid secures justice and provides legal services for the most vulnerable residents in Northeast Ohio. Dr. Margaret Hagen is director of the Legal Design Lab at Stanford University, which conducts exploratory design work and empirical research to reimagine a better legal system. And Erica Rickard, she is the project director of civil legal system modernization for the Pew Charitable Trusts. This pro project supports efforts to deliver a civil justice system that is more accessible and effective, and that's what we're talking about today. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Colleen Cotter, give us a thumbnail. Let's talk about what the problem is. How has the pandemic impacted the demand for your services? So, Anne, the impact of the pandemic is really profound. First, let me set the stage and explain that the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland serves five counties in Northeast Ohio. And every year, while we help thousands of people resolve legal issues that impact shelter, safety, health, and economic security, we also have to turn away more than half of the people who come to us because we don't have the resources to meet the need. There is no, in most situations, no right to court-appointed counsel in civil cases. But the pandemic has really increased the need in very specific ways. Uh, we've seen, since the pandemic started, a 47% increase in landlord-tenant uh, intakes, so people calling about evictions, and a 600% increase in calls about unemployment, which makes sense, right? We know that so many people have lost their jobs, 
and getting access to unemployment keeps people afloat during times of unemployment. Uh, and we've had huge problems with that system, people accessing it. And when people lose their jobs, they can't pay their rent. So they're faced with eviction. So those two things really are, are related and the need is huge. And I'm sorry to say growing. And on top of that, there, there's the whole unemployment fraud issue. Yeah, there is. And as many people know, we've seen um, significant numbers of uh, entities who are stealing people's identity and claim and uh, filing unemployment claims, which causes fear and anxiety for so many people. Uh, Susan Che, um, just to, to maybe let, add on to that, what are you seeing from your online, you know, the, the kind of demand for your online resources that you provide? Sure. So kind of echoing what Colleen said, we've seen since the pandemic hit, we've seen an overall 600% increase in um, traffic to the website. And right now, um, it, it, is, it really is a cascade, right? Uh, people lose their jobs or lose hours in pay, and they're unable to pay rent. So right now, um, it's really bread and butter issues that we're seeing on our website. So we're currently assisting about 50 to 60,000 um, folks a month. And right now, the most in-demand topics are um, information about the CDC eviction moratorium, unemployment, and actually food, how to access food. Um, we've, had, we've assisted since the pandemic over 20,000 folks just access food and SNAP benefits in Ohio. Um, Erica Rickard, necessity is the mother of invention, as they say, and it is fascinating to see how the pandemic, you know, has forced all kinds of issues, not the least of which is this vaccine thing that we have. We thought it would take years. It's been a matter of months. How is the civil justice system? What have you seen in the civil justice system? That How has it upped its game to address the impacts? So what I've been looking at is uh, state and local courts in particular and how courts have responded to uh, the public health emergency, whether that's with shutdowns of buildings or mask mandates or other kinds of changes because of the pandemic. And what we've seen is a really striking increase in the use of technology. So courts have lagged behind other areas, even in the government sector, when it comes to using technology or thinking about how to provide services differently. Um, because in the 21st century than they have in previous decades or even centuries. And as uh, one judge put it recently, courts have changed more in the past 10 months than they have in the past 100 years. Uh, we're seeing everything from small things like, do you have to sign a piece of paper with a pen uh, all the way to uh, more uh, dramatic changes like moving court hearings from in a courtroom to using uh, video conferencing or telephone. And I'm sure uh, Colleen and, and Susan can describe a little bit about how that's uh, playing out in Ohio in particular, but we've been uh, really surprised by the dramatic proliferation of the use of technology tools for civil cases in particular. Um, it, so, all right. So then from, I, I, I'm interested in what your um, perspectives are then on on access to technology and uh, the, dispar the disparity uh, in Ohio between rural and urban and between urban, uh, low-wealth urban, and, and the rest? 
Kelly? Yeah, I would say from yeah, from my perspective, um, it, it really brings those inequities home. You know, we've seen a lot of national attention on the disparities um, with regard to technology and its impact on education. Um, and the same is true in the court system. And many of our courts have indeed gone to virtual hearings, just like we're, we are doing today. Um, not all of them. In Ohio, we do not have a unified court system. So every court decides on its own how they are responding to this national health emergency, which creates a lot of confusion and uh, very unequal access. Um, but for people who, for courts that have gone primarily uh, virtual, um, that's great from a, a health perspective. Um, and for some people it's a, it's liberating because getting downtown, finding parking, paying for childcare, all of that is very difficult for people with low income. Uh, but you still have to have access to the internet and you have to have a good device, a device that your third grader is not using for virtual school. Um, so it's complicated. In fact, uh, at the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, we are launching this week a pilot program where we purchased a bunch of Chromebooks and we're loaning them out to clients who are in eviction court so that um, we were bringing clients into our office, but we want to reduce you know, contact even more. Um, so, but having something as simple as a Chromebook that has internet uh, can be the difference between justice and injustice. And where, how did that happen, that we're in this place in this country where every step along the way, um, people go off track through no fault of their own, and they don't actually get a chance to tell their story to a court and have their rights enforced. And when you think about the court system, it is the premier law enforcement entity in our country. And so if you're not able to access the court system and say the right things to get your case before a judge, you're denied enforcement of the laws that are set out to protect you. Yeah. And I was just going to add that um, what we're seeing in terms of the trends of technology is that um, since the pandemic started, it used to be about 50-50, right? Uh, we, we understood that folks would need to access potentially our services via a computer, having stable broadband. Um, but we had anticipated that over time, more and more folks would be on mobile, right? So being built for a smartphone. What we've seen since the pandemic is that on any given weekend, 90% of our traffic is on mobile. And right now our overarching traffic is folks on mobile about 70%. Now. We had anticipated that, so we built for your cell phone. We're, we're actually built for your phone versus a desktop. But I think what I, and I think the other folks can talk and comment on this. And I think someone said that, you know, basically the courts have moved, you know, like a decade and 10 months. We, we've seen a similar thing where essentially within the pandemic, what we thought would be a trend that we would see in five years for us happened overnight. Um, and it's been, really interesting to see that. But at the same time, there are certain things that you need a desktop and a stable broadband um, connection to do. And I think the pandemic has really brought to light the digital divide and how that really impacts the ability to have life-changing change and access in, in like families' lives. I wonder if any of you are uh, concerned that 
because on one level, it's been kind of easy to make this transition because of the technology we had at hand, where this could be come more um, permanent or normal normalized. And I wonder if that puts people who need to be done, you know, who would fall into a category that would use that, it puts them at some kind of a disadvantage. Um, every day, but he gets their day in court. Is it different when you're doing it from a cell phone or from an unstable, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 platform? Does this court see you differently? Are there any concerns? Yeah, I wanted to chime in. So there's lots of anecdotal observations about this right now. Um, we know again, anecdotally, but not from hard numbers, that more people are actually showing up to their court hearings if there is the Zoom or WebEx or online option. But often what they're doing is calling in with a phone number. And I'm sure many of you have been on online meetings where maybe there's one person, you don't see their face, maybe you see a phone number and a black box. Um, and then usually at the hearing, of course, the judge is on video, the attorney on the other side may be on video. So is a person who is represented at their hearing um, only by audio, not with video, not with a proper stable background, um, are they at a disadvantage? Do they feel like they can participate equally or even know what's going on if they're just hearing everything rather than seeing? So um, we're doing a study of that right now in partnership with the Indiana courts to see whether there's different outcomes or different experiences. But I think anecdotally it is Oops. a cause for concern. What about anybody else? Yeah, I think, Anne, that you raise a really good question. And my hope for so many things, we've learned so much during this pandemic, right? And there's some things that we've had to do that are just terrible. There's some things that we've had to do that we think, well, okay, we, we could incorporate this and should incorporate this after the pandemic. So I would I, I hope that the court system in general, and certainly at Legal Aid, we're examining what we've been doing and figuring out what should we continue and what should we get rid of and what should we modify. And if at the very beginning of engagement with the courts, um, if the courts could assess what are the technology, what, 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 you know, what, what, who has access, who doesn't have access, and not require people to be remote if that's not realistic and not require to be, have people in person if that's not realistic. And there are a lot of court proceedings that just involve lawyers that could just be virtual and would be much more efficient for everybody. So if we started with those <laughs> and then went to the situations where people in poverty, especially if physical presence is a barrier, then offer virtual. But if virtual is a barrier, that should not be the standard. Um, and I just think the court system needs to learn to be more flexible, which has not really been a strong suit. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. Erica, Ricard. Uh, I think building off what Colleen said, I think this is absolutely right, that this is a moment to reflect on what's working, what's effective, and how can we actually improve the way things work in the future uh, particularly for people who are trying to use the courts without a lawyer uh, addressing major issues in their lives. Um, but one thing that I'm hoping that we'll be able to do is not only look at how things are working right now, but compare it to what was happening before the pandemic. So Colleen described, for example, uh, people not getting their uh, 
full fair day in court where they were actually able to participate in the court case. What we have observed even before the pandemic is that a vast majority of cases uh, are debt collection lawsuits or landlord tenant cases where the plaintiff is bringing a lawsuit and the the defendant, whether that's a consumer or a tenant, isn't participating in the court case, which results in almost an automatic win for the company that's bringing the lawsuit, a default judgment. So when we're looking at how things are working today, are they are we moving the needle? Are we actually reducing the barriers to participation for people? Are we increasing the barriers to participation for people? And how can we reflect on improving the system overall, not only using the technology tools that we have right now, but also to overcome some of the barriers that we had even before the pandemic? Yeah, Erica is absolutely right. Default rates are a huge problem and a huge barrier to justice in our country. In addition to technology being helpful in removing that barrier, another significant removal uh, theory is counsel. Having an attorney by your side reduces default judgments, which makes sense. If I'm sued for eviction and I don't know the first thing about the court system, I'm scared. I don't understand what's going on. Maybe I assume I don't have any rights when in fact I do. And if I have a lawyer by my side who's there to represent me, explain the process, raise my defenses and counterclaims, I am empowered and I want to participate in the system and the system will work for me. And uh, New York City, which passed right to counsel in eviction cases a few years ago, has found that the default rate decreases with the appointment of attorneys. And so people are empowered to show up when they have a lawyer. Uh, The city of Cleveland passed a right to counsel law last year in 2019 that became effective July 1st of 2020 that Legal Aid is in partnership with United Way is implementing. And we're hoping to find the same thing, the default rates decrease because people are empowered to participate in our justice system. Yeah, I mean, how are you going to control for that given the pandemic? Or is that okay? Or it doesn't change that calculation? Oh, you know, we have all of these projections based on what we really thought would happen as a result of right to counsel, and it's all throw it out the window. Um, It will be very interesting to look back after we come out of the pandemic and then see what, you know, what spiked and what dipped and what was the pandemic and what was new. It um, keeps us on our toes, that's for sure. Margaret Hagan, in February, you published a piece that asked, in short, uh, what if cities shared their ideas on local eviction prevent, pre, uh, prevention? You know, a, a microcosm question. What have you learned about how reforms translate from one political subdivision to another anyways? Is there is there that much difference between all the cities and states and everything? Well, that's been the truism for a long time, partly because not just Ohio being a court system where every court is making its rules, but every state having its own separate um, civil court system. So eviction rules, um, debt collection rules, family law rules, all of these are different state to state. So typically that's been a barrier to actually learning or spreading or scaling innovative new policies or services. Um, The interesting thing with the pandemic is how much interest there is in learning across borders. So we had this idea to band cities together to do um, kind of in parallel innovation. So learning from each other about how to reform court rules to make it more um, supportive for people without lawyers or to get to landlords and tenants earlier or to gather 
data in a better way to understand what's actually happening in the court system. So we started with a, a group of cities, many of them close to Ohio, but not exactly in, so like Grand Rapids, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Norfolk, Richmond. Um, and there was a lot of interest in the city governments, the court systems, and the legal aid communities learning from each other about exactly like how to set up an eviction diversion program, how to get out into the community and help um, educate people about their rights, how to set up right to counsel so that cities like San Francisco and New York can help a city like Philadelphia or like Cleveland, who's in the beginning stages. So we're really invested in this idea of learning across borders um, because otherwise it takes so much energy to reinvent the wheel in a given city or region. Um, and there's so much that certain cities or states have made a lot of progress in and they can translate that across the borders. Um, so like for example, right now with the pandemic, the state of Michigan and the state of Texas are launching new eviction diversion programs. So if this predicted tsunami of evictions is coming through the court system, especially after the CDC national eviction moratorium expires on March 31st, that the court system is ready to settle those cases in a cooperative tenant and landlord friendly way. Um, and so we can learn from those Michigan and Texas models as um, I think there's some models being set up right now in Ohio. I think Cincinnati is starting a diversion remediation program so that those best practices can be um, shared, even if not cut whole cloth from one city to the other. Yeah, Susan Che. Yeah, I was just gonna say that I think it's so important that we all kind of learn from each other. And that's why the research that Margaret and Eric are doing um, are so critical and that the data that you can either get from an Ohio Legal Help, which is a portal or from the legal aids and from the courts, that it's really important to have that sharing because without that data, it's really hard to understand what's what happened, what's happening and how to address it in the future. And one of the things that, um, you know, I'm not sure if it's unique about Ohio, and I think Colleen mentioned this, we're not a unified court. So um, one of the things that our consumers told us that just finding the court, finding out where to go, thinking about court, literally the words they use, it, they get such anxiety from yeah. it that it's debilitating. So one of the things that we tried to think of, and we didn't, we didn't think this would be our most popular function at this point, but people are literally finding their local court on our website as a portal. So we've made over 50,000 referrals to just finding your local court um, because that is actually hard for folks. And so we need to think about from just that level, you gotta, you gotta find the court to prevent a default. And, and yeah. That's really hard to do. I, yeah. I, the only time I've, I was never a courts reporter, and the only time I had to do it was when I had to report for jury duty, mm -hmm. and I got lost doing that. So literally, it's yep. hard to find. Yep. And there's so many different courts. You know, and Erica Ricardo, I wanted, I can't remember if it was you or Margaret Hagen that talked about in some of the material I read, just about the issue of all of that and dignity. And remembering the human the humanity that we're dealing with and people in their looks possibly in their lowest point of their life and how we go forward with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure uh, Margaret can speak to that as well. But I think that um, thinking about putting the court user first is not uh, how courts have been built, right? Courts were built by lawyers for lawyers and have not made changes to accommodate the fact that now 
three out of every four civil court cases has at least one side that doesn't have a lawyer and doesn't go to court every day. Um, and that trying to navigate a structure that was built entirely without them in mind is a really, really challenging one and doesn't recognize the family situation, the housing, the economic situation that the uh, that is bringing that case to court. It's not a case, it's a person's life that we're talking about here. Yeah, and I would just, oh, I would just add to that, that um, the things that bring people to court, especially people with low income are very traumatic. Um, you, you know, the situation where someone loses their job, that's trauma in itself. And then they're served with an eviction and they're faced with, where are my kids going to sleep? Am I going to be able to get them to school or not? Um, how, where am I going to put my stuff? The trauma that they're experiencing, and then they go to court and, you know, let's set the pandemic aside, go to court, not being able to figure out the panic of that. I can't find the right room. Um, what you were describing and getting lost, going to jury trial or jury duty. And that was just jury duty, but you were probably nervous about it and it's upsetting. And um, to have this system as Erica de described that is not designed for, for pro se litigants, which are people without lawyers um, and not designed to help people who are experiencing trauma and then re-traumatizing them. I mean, we've learned a lot in our country about the damage of trauma that that has on people long lasting. And I think we have to own the contribution that our justice system has in that culture. Margaret? Yeah, I wanted to give one example. Um, I think back in 2019, when we could still be in person together, um, yeah, I had been working with a group in Cincinnati, the courts, the self-help center in the courts, um, where they have free lawyers for brief advice and the local legal aid. And the courts actually um, recruited a bunch of people who had been through the system, who had come as self-represented litigants through eviction landlord-tenant proceedings to come in and to hear back from the, um, the litigants about what their experiences were and especially the key moment that we ended up focusing in on was the piece of paper that people get when they're sued for eviction, that summons and complaint that lets them know that a court action is initiated, which is a very scary piece of paper. And the traditional way that the court was issuing it to people, you can imagine small print, lots of legal jargon, very intimidating. You wouldn't know where to go, when to show up, even which building in downtown Cincinnati to go to. So we did a, a few hours in a court um, a boardroom to totally reimagine that and to put information that would be helpful that people could call or come in and get human to human help. Because I think that's what most people want in that situation. Either that wonderful free counsel, that lawyer who they don't have to pay for um, that can help them in this moment of crisis or um, even just a lawyer to talk to you for an hour. Or I think there's even a new model coming out of community navigators of people in the community who are volunteers who can help people have that sense of dignity, have that sense of confidence to be able to participate, um, to show up at the right place, say words that help them activate their rights um, and hopefully get to a good outcome for themselves. Uh, in a few minutes, we're gonna turn to our audience questions. So you can text your questions to 330 541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them uh, at the City Club. A at the City Club. 
uh, we'll try to work them in. So uh, get those questions in. We'd like to hear from you. Um, it, you know, this is kind of an odd thing, but it, when I was thinking about all of these common concerns that the concerns are, are similar all the way across the United States, I kind of thought of the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is obviously a conservative group, right? But they get together and they actually propose legislation. Um, it may not be, you know, it, it, that it's just a concept. And I'm wondering if there's anything like that um, when it comes to these kinds of issues. Susan Che, do you know, or does anybody know? Yeah, I think everyone can comment on this. There's a number of national and then, um, for instance, there's the Conference of Chief Justices, that's the National Center on State Courts. In fact, the Conference of Chief Justice is just, Chief Justices issued a resolution on 100% access to justice as an aspirational goal that we should as a community work toward that goal. And then uh, there are also standing committees of the ABA that look at this, but there's also wonderful like nonprofit national organizations like the SRLM, the Self-Represented Litigant Network, NLADA, and others that really look at and focus on access to justice issues. And then here in Ohio, we have an access to justice entity, the Ohio Access to Justice Foundation, that this is their mission to work on increasing access to justice in Ohio. Um, and so there are good organizations thinking about this, but I do think there needs to be more information sharing so that we can all work better together. And because of the way things are structured, is it is it that it's not a legislative issue, really, or is it something? Is, is that is that part of it, Margaret Hagan? Sorry, it can be. <laughs> I think Erica was going to say something too, but okay. again, this is very state to state. But definitely, when it comes to how long a person has, if they've been sued for a certain. Um, eviction, foreclosure, um, debt, often that is set by the legislation about how long you have to reply. If you are a, if you have to submit a long formal legal document to even get a day in court, the legislation, legislatures in each state could have a big impact on that. Erica? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, what's really both important but also challenging about civil justice is that what we're talking about is a whole host of different issues. Everything from evictions to debt collection cases to divorces and child support, these are all encaptured in the civil justice system. And each of them kind of has their own set of potential constituencies and potential levers for reform. And there's absolutely court reform efforts that are really helpful um, and also legislative changes that can tackle discrete issue areas, whether that's housing or financial or family issue areas. So it's, it's all of the above, Anne. Okay. Yeah, and I would just, I think the, the experience we've had in Cleveland with regard to right to counsel and evictions is a good example of how many entities and individuals have come together to create significant reform. City Council passed legislation that established a right to counsel in eviction cases. Um, the city partially funded the program to bring that to life. The housing court, um, the judge, housing court judge, and magistrates and staff are working with Legal Aid and United Way to reform notices and processes to make it possible for people to access that system. And United Way and Legal Aid, as the lead partners for implementation, are doing outreach to people to to educate people about their right 
educate people about how to access a lawyer for evictions and make sure that it's not just a law on paper, but it's actually effectuated and impacts people's lives. And all of that is being evaluated so we will understand what's working, what's not working, what do we need to change to make sure that the system works and we can share that with other cities around the country. So having, I absolutely agree with Erica that there are so many pieces and that's one of the reasons that reform is hard is because it's not like, oh, legislation does X or the court needs to do Y. We need so many partners to come together. And I think that having increased understanding of what the civil justice system is and does and what it can do for our country is critical for that reform. And just to circle back to that question of flexibility within the system itself, uh, not and and not 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 you all, but the system that you're navigating, is, is that changing? I mean, do you see a new generation coming up that's trying to change it? New judges, that kind of a thing. So I think that it's you know I think that folks are looking at different solutions, whether it's eviction diversion programs or right to counsel or, um, and I think something that the Pew is really looking at, online dispute resolution um, as a means to give just, you know, folks who aren't attorneys, folks who, you know, as a lawyer, and I'll admit I'm a lawyer, we've created an entire set of rules called the civil rules, right? And I mean, and to, and to like non-lay people, as my staff say, like, who are not attorneys, they're writers, right? They tell me, I don't really care what civil rule four says, but I'm like, that's your entry to court. But for you know the average person, it's not. But if you have online dispute resolution, for instance, you can take the civil rules away for a little while and just let people talk and be just two people, whether in a virtual room or asynchronously and try to resolve the situation. And so I do think that courts are looking at other tools to be more flexible in terms of looking at some of those rules that are real barriers to justice for people. I have a question from the audience. Um, the difficulty of collection and analysis of data related to the criminal justice system has long been a source of frustration for advocates over the years. One would assume that the virtual pivot of the system to electronic meetings due to the pandemic would have been an opportunity for more or better digital data analysis on how the system is treating citizens to reduce inequality. Has that indeed happened? Is there an example of an existing system that is setting the standard for data collection by a criminal justice system to increase accessibility and hopefully improvement? And of course, we're talking about the civil system right now, so maybe we can translate it into the civil system. Anybody? Yeah, I don't have a good example of a positive data collection. I will say that in Ohio, uh, the data available for our civil courts is uh, very uneven um, in terms of what is tracked, where it's tracked, and getting the information out. I do think that um, pushes from academia, folks like Margaret and Erica, who um, are sort of pushing um, in partnership, but from the outside to say, well, if if I want to help you be better, but we need to understand the information and what's happening um, it is helping. So that's helping. But when before Right to Counsel was passed in Cleveland, we commissioned a study from Case Western Reserve University about evictions. 
Um, and part of that was analyzing data from the court, but part of it had to be because the court didn't have the data actually sitting in the courtroom and talking to tenants and getting in, gathering information from them. And we learned from that, uh, not from the court's data, but we learned from that, that a, a significant majority of tenants facing eviction were African-American women with children. And so when we think about if we know more about who's in the court system and for what reason and what happens to them, we can see things through a different lens. The impact of the eviction system, and I would say the entire civil justice system on black and brown people is significant. So as we look at things through a racial justice lens, we need to understand that and think about how our systems are set up to disempower and we need to change that to empower people and invite them to part fully participate in our community. Um, and a lot of that is having a lawyer by their side. A lot of that is changing the system so that it's actually understandable by everyday people and not just folks who have a JD after their name. Anybody else? Yeah, I chime in that, um, so a state like Michigan, not every single county or every single district is participating, but they do have a central statewide data warehouse for the courts to be contributing all of their case management records. So what kind of cases are being filed, some amount of demographic information, what the outcomes are, whether that person had an attorney or not. And that centralization within the state then makes sure that like all those different data sets are cleaned and analyzable and that state um, can then work with researchers or others to really dig in and understand the dynamics. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is a lot more courts partnering with universities or data groups like in Richmond to really understand which communities, which neighborhoods and which demographics are most at risk. And that can help with better outreach, with um, better understanding of what services are needed and and the equity and racial issues that are um, oftentimes perhaps overlooked inside these systems. So um, the pandemic has been a great push to have more um, talk about these kinds of either statewide or national data standards, data collaboratives or hubs where we can start to collect this data more, um, more cleanly across the country to actually understand what's going on inside the courts. But that's a big push. <laughs> At least there's more energy and momentum right now for it. Yeah. Yeah, it never ceases to amaze me what's what we don't know sometimes, especially given our the ability to collect data. Erica, did you want to add something or? Oops. I, I do have hope. Um, uh, <laughs> I think as, as Margaret's describing, there is more momentum than ever before toward this idea. The, the Conference of Chief Justices that Susan mentioned, which is the national leaders of all of the state court systems in the country, uh, put out a resolution calling for more uh, sharing of data for the, with the idea of being able to understand exactly what we've we talked about earlier about like wanting to know how courts are performing in the pandemic and beyond. But that's really just the, the door opener for us, right? That's just like the beginning of being able to understand and unpack what is actually happening in, in the court systems across the country. Uh, another question from the audience. Uh, we're starting to see the philanthropic community get involved in criminal justice reform efforts. Are we seeing efforts at the same scale when it comes to closing the civil justice gap? Yeah, I can start with that. I, we are seeing a lot of interest in Cleveland uh, by the philanthropic community. The, um, I mentioned United Way being a partner in 
implementation of the right to counsel program in evictions. We also have significant funding from the Cleveland Foundation and from a number of other foundations to support the right to counsel program. Philanthropy can play such an important role in pushing and um, helping us pilot and do new things, uh, but the reforms can't be sustained only by philanthropy. So, um, but they have indeed been a great partner. And I think as with so many others, it used to be 20 years ago, it really was lawyers who thought about the justice system and people who aren't lawyers didn't really think about it. We didn't invite them to think about it. We didn't sort of want them on our team. And now there is much more of an understanding that uh, the justice system is central to our democracy and full engagement by everyone is critical to us living up to the dream of democracy. So it should involve everybody, not just lawyers. Yeah, and I was gonna comment on that. I think that um, I think that philanthropy, I mean, we're, we're relatively new, we're, we're a startup. Uh, while we were founded in 2018, our, our website launched in 2019. And so um, I think about sustaining funding every minute of the day, because it's critical that we can continue to do the work and continue to impact the hundreds of thousands of folks we reach. Um, I, I want to just echo Colleen's point. I, I think that kind of like public health impacts all of us, legal health is an extension of that. And I think that it's important that we think about, you know, how we fund civil legal aid, how we fund civil justice in that kind of more holistic way. Um, because again, um, the fact that someone has substandard housing means that it impacts their health outcomes. The fact that someone is impacted during COVID literally impacts their health outcomes and could, um, you know, it, I mean, it's just, I think we need to think broader. Philanthropy has been a great partner to us um, and they've been fabulous in terms of um, funding and seeding new ideas for us, including, um, it's actually something we're gonna to announce today, um, we're announcing a partnership with the Montgomery County Courts to um, build a virtual self-help center um, with them. So philanthropy has been a wonderful partner to us. Um, well, on that, I, 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 we got a few more questions, but I wanna ask Margaret then in a January article, um, you asked whether the legal aid community could, I, I think this is my words, cross-pollinate with other disciplines, um, specifically medicine. And it made me think of, you just made me think of that, Colin, or I'm Susan uh, Che, when you were talking about that. I mean, there's a lot to learn from different disciplines that have nothing to do with, per se, law, right, Margaret? Yes, exactly. And I think there's the literal cross-pollination of like having lawyers in medical clinics. Mm -hmm. And so as doctors are seeing kids coming in with asthma or symptoms of maybe substandard housing, having lawyers right there to advise them on what their rights are or how to take action responsibly. Or if a kid needs special education support and IEP at school, having a lawyer in that setting. And there's more and more of those medical legal partnerships um, that are quite effective and having that kind of holistic care team for um, people who have these crossover medical legal issues. So that's stream one. Stream two is that we in the legal community, in the courts, legal aid, legal researchers, that we can look at how public health um, uh, and doctor professionals are using big data from how people are searching on Google, what kind of symptoms they have, what kind of needs they have, um, how they're using large data sets uh, 
from doctors and hospitals to better understand which treatments best serve people with certain kinds of symptoms or scenarios. So I feel that, yeah, medicine is definitely a few steps ahead in leveraging data, technology, 21st century tools. And that's probably where we could be investing more in to have more um, intelligent and responsive services as people are um, having these civil legal needs. Uh, anybody else want to add to that or? Okay. Um, let's see. We have another question. Someone asked how, quote, regular, end quote, residents can get involved in these efforts. So, you know, are you all lawyers? Yeah. Okay. So how can the rest of us <laughs> play a role in this? Is there a role for like, you know, they have um, advocates for children that are non-lawyers. Uh, is there a non-lawyer role in here in terms of per individual advocacy? Yeah, I would say the first obvious answer to me is um, helping neighbors and friends uh, understand that when they have an issue, sometimes a lawyer and sometimes the court system is where they need to go and um, helping them figure out where to find the resources to make that happen and um, not sort of being part of the, oh, the courts will never listen to me because I'm just an individual. Uh, it, too often that is true because people don't know how to navigate, but only by really believing the court system should and respond to everybody will we truly change the system. So that's one piece. The other is that there definitely are specific programs, and I'm, I will go back to the Right to Counsel program. We have people who are door knockers to spread the word um, that, oh, you, you've been uh, served with an eviction notice, you might have a right to a a lawyer. And so getting involved in getting the word out and bringing people into the system um, is, is hugely important for whether people are lawyers or not lawyers. Anybody else? I'll just plug Susan's website. So even if yeah. you can tell anyone in your life that Ohio Legal Help exists, just getting that as a front door to understand, is there a legal aid group that can help me, a court that can help me, getting people to that authoritative information, that kind of outreach that Colleen was saying. Or if you belong to a church, a knitting club, a school, any kind of community organization, and you can invite a legal aid lawyer in to give a short presentation and try to demystify the legal system, that kind of community outreach, I think, is what's missing in a lot of places. And having these kind of easier, more friendly on-ramps so that if a situation does arise, that people feel more confident um, about where to go, who to trust, and how to take care of themselves. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more with what Margaret's saying. I think too often um, when people are looking for legal help or answers to legal questions is when they're in a moment of crisis. Yeah. So if, if people can be in a position to be aware of the resources that are available to you and to your neighbors and family members, when you're not in currently in a moment of crisis, then those resources are going to be a lot easier to find and obtain when something happens in, in the life of your family member or neighbor. So Susan and oh. Colleen, then do you, do you do outreach through food pantries, through homeless shelters, through that kind of stuff? Yeah. yeah, all of the above. We rely heavily on our partner organizations who are not legal aid because people, when, when, when folks have a crisis, they may not understand that a lawyer can help them and they may not know how to get to a lawyer. They're going to go to a trusted source, a neighbor, um, a teacher, a minister or, or a rabbi 
a social worker. And so we get the word out to all of those uh, leaders in the community, um, just community block club leaders. Uh, we do a lot of going out to the community as that Margaret described to do um, presentations um, and then getting a lot of materials out there with electronic via the web, our own website, Susan's website um, and newsletters and flyers so that we can be where and when people need us. Yeah, and I was just gonna say we, um, you know, the pandemics had, we've, we've had to become more creative um, in terms of how we do outreach. But um, one of the things, for instance, we're talking with um, the Ohio Association of Food Banks to put just a simple um, business card that is ohiolegalhelp.org in like every bag of food that goes out. We'll provide the collateral. Um, it's a great way for us to do that. Um, I just have this really quick story. Uh, we had a bank teller refer someone to our website. Um, and then as a result, they were able to connect on like estate planning issues because we don't do complicated estate planning, but just the fact that a bank teller who happened to tell someone and the fact that then they told us that it was this particular bank that actually referred them to us because we asked for that kind of information, we kind of have an understanding. And then the other thing we we're trying to work on right now is actually working with beauticians. Um, we think that, you know, I don't know. I love the woman who cuts my hair. She hasn't cut my hair in a while. I'm very sad. But I mean, you know, we're, we're going to get out through those networks as well, because we know that low income, underserved, vulnerable folks, those are the folks that they trust. So it is these trusted intermediaries are sometimes called, and we want to do direct outreach to that so that they can get connected to legal aid, connected to a private you know, lawyer, or, you know, again, the folks that we've connected just to food during the pandemic. We've touched on this a little bit, but I want to take this question because I, I think it just, I don't, I, we can keep talking about it for a long time. It's a whole topic in and of itself. They say, I know this conversation has a lot of energy around closing the civil justice gap, but we have a deep digital divide in Ohio. Don't we need to bridge the digital divide before we can fully bridge the civil justice gap? I mean, really, I mean, you talked, Colleen, and I thought that was really interesting about the, the um, tablets. It makes so much sense. Um, and then, of course, schools distributed thousands and thousands of tablets um, over the and, and laptops over the course of the last 12 months. And with the full intention that they're not taking them back, you know, that that's not what is going to happen now. This is, um, you know, because you can give somebody a tablet, but if they never, if they're not comfortable with the technology, then that's another piece of the disconnect. So what are your thoughts about that, Erica, Ricard? I mean, what do you think? It's it we have to be able to do both, right? We have, so the, the digital divide is a very real barrier here. We're talking about both, uh, hardware, whether people have a tablet or a laptop or using a smartphone or a not smartphone. Um, uh, and then also uh, the issue of broadband and whether people have actual stable, stable high quality internet access. Um, but, and what we've seen is some uh, courts and legal services providers have been able to provide both high tech solutions and lower tech alternatives, right? So if you're allowing for people to send documents electronically, are you also providing an avenue for people to have a physical Dropbox to be able to drop off paper if that's all that's available? Um, is there, uh, are there, you know, phone alternatives to participating in a one-on-one -on -one session with a legal services provider instead, in addition to video? Um, same thing with court. So I think in the, as a kind of 
short-term temporary solution, being able to identify identify kind of the range of options for people depending on technology access. It's a start, um, but that's only going to be uh, in the near term. In the longer term, it's really important to be able to ensure that people that we are bridging the digital divide while we're while we're moving forward. Um, and a follow up to that question is, are the speakers also working with organizations aimed at closing the digital divide? So um, I, mean, I kind of wonder if there is and we're starting to see this kind of take shape and relief instead of someone saying you have a right to a computer or you know internet access that the pressures coming to bear from all of these different agencies and different kinds of and, and different kinds of governmental organizations and the, the kind of you know what they're asking of everybody to do um, is changing that that conversation at all um, Colleen yeah, I think at the heart of all of this is really the point that everything is connected. And, you know, we we know that in order to access justice or access the schools, we need good Internet. We know we need to have um, people need to have the, the ability and skill set and knowledge to use those devices. Um, but just like housing is connected to education, it's connected to jobs. It's connected to strong neighborhoods. And. I think maybe that is a positive thing that has come from the pandemic is um, hopefully it's made us realize that we all rely on each other. Institutions rely on each other. People rely on each other. And we can't be seeing ourselves in these silos and only worried about our silos. We need to worry about the whole community and look at the entire community and decide where should we be putting our priorities and what is the foundation? What is the infrastructure that we need to develop to really support people through good times and bad and help them connect to each other through the court system or through um, friendships? It makes me think though, that as long as we're still debating, we kind of, you know, writ large, the, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs issue in this country, how are we ever going to have that kind of, the equity that we're kind of is at the root of the conversation today, Margaret Hagen. What are your What are your thoughts about that? I don't know this is a big one, and I think this is why I what Colleen is saying about coming out of the silo and realizing how interconnected this is. Yeah. And this touches back on the philanthropy point too. I mean, that just we have to be not just raising money for individual small legal programs, but these kind of hybrid cross community efforts that incentivize more. Um, legal plus education plus medical um, plus local community leaders kinds of efforts. So I'm excited that um, there is this new awareness and this new hunger for these kind of cross collaborative efforts. Um, and hopefully they'll be successful. We can see more pilots of them um, to get more of this legal knowledge out there, more ability to participate virtually or in person. But yes, I think there's huge <laughs> the income inequality and racial equity issues are, you can see them very clearly if you just sit in the back of a courtroom or come onto an online court um, calendar. So there's gonna be big structural <laughs> changes um, and these kind of cross-sector efforts are the only way that are going to be able to address those things. Yeah, Susan Che. And I was gonna just say, I think awareness and education. Um, when um, I, I used to teach at, um, Ohio State at Moritz here in Columbus. And um, I taught a clinic on, uh, I was a housing clinic, so I was a clinical instructor. 
And I used to make every one of my housing students go to eviction court at least once during the semester. And they would, they all came back and realized that approximately 100 people had lost their home in a space of three hours on one morning on Monday in Columbus. And those are primarily women of color with minor children. And that impacted them. And I think that we can talk about the digital divide, but we have to take it back to something Colleen said, which is the human impact. And we all have to realize what lack of access does. It means, you know, it means that those kids may not matriculate and graduate from high school. Um, it may mean these have real impacts. And I think if we start there, I'm hoping that these cross collaborations, we can think more as a community because this has to be a community solution. Well, Colleen Cotter, what about you? Yeah, I think everything is connected and I wanna go back to the social determinants of health that Margaret and Susan were talking about earlier. At the end of the day, you know, we've seen um, life expectancy go back, go down in this country for the first time in, in generations. And we all know that your zip code is a greater determinant of your life expectancy than anything else. And so we have to, in terms of the priorities for our communities, if we see that everything is connected, then it, making investments where they really matter and where they can, the payoff can be seen in many other ways is really, I think, what we need to prioritize. So understanding that. Um, doing rigorous studies to understand what is the impact um, and saving people's houses and, and empowering people to truly participate and defend themselves and assert their rights um, has a much bigger payoff for society than that individual case. It has, it has job stability, it has education stability, it has stable, stabilizes communities and neighborhoods and it benefits everybody. Erica, I'll give you the last word. I think what we've all been describing here is really the importance of working together across sectors and then also sharing what's working uh, with other communities as well, right? So if we're identifying solutions that are strengthening our communities and improving our access to justice and bridging the digital divide in one city, can we translate that into uh, action in other locations as well? I wanna say thanks for joining us for today's forum, uh, Efforts to Bridge the Civil Justice Gap. Thanks as well to our panel. It's been a privilege talking with you. Susan Che, Executive Director of Ohio Legal Help. Colleen Cotter, Executive Director of the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland. And Dr. Margaret Hagan, Director of the Legal Design Lab at Stanford University. And also Erica Rickard, she's Project Director of Civil Legal System Modernization for the Pew Charitable Trusts. Today's forum is the Sidney D. Josephs Memorial Forum on the Bill of Rights. Mr. Josephs and his wife, Nina, believed fiercely in the protections of our freedoms as memorialized in the Bill of Rights. Mr. Joseph, a longtime City Club member, founded the Ohio chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, and he served as president of both the Cleveland and Ohio chapters. We are grateful to the Joseph family for honoring both Sidney and Nina through this endowment gift in support of City Club programming. All City Club virtual forums are presented free every week thanks to generous support from Bank of America, KeyBank, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC. 
You can join them in supporting City Club's mission by making a contribution online or becoming a member at cityclub.org. I'm Ann Fisher. Thanks for joining us today. Our forum is now adjourned.